Hello everybody and welcome back inside the Shark Tank for another episode of the pod. Uh, I'm not clever enough to come up with a, with a pun for this week's episode because uh, we're actually not going to talk about Sale at all. We're going to be talking, of course, about the Six Nations with the Sale not in action over the weekend, but plenty of rugby to dissect. Anyway, my name is Lewis and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Alex and James. And Alex, I'll go to you first, mate. Uh, you know, Super Saturday never, never disappoints, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, the memories of the England Island game are a bit hazy for me, so I might have to lean on you boys for that particular bit. Um, I did, I think, get so annoyed at one particular incident during the game, which might come up, um, that I turned around and started watching Man City on the other telly in the bar I was in. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. But no, a really good day, some really good rugby. Um, was quite hoping for some results to go the other way, but nevertheless, I think it still underlined, just underlines the pulling power of the Six Nations and what a great product there is if we can all uh, we can all learn to market it properly and um, and you know build on that success, then uh, then it can be really really good at times, can't it? No, absolutely, and I think you're right. I feel the same about some of those results, which we'll obviously go into. But James, you know, Ireland have done it. Grand Slam champions. They were by far the best team in the competition this year, as evidenced by the fact that they won every game. Um, what's been your thoughts on the Six Nations writ large then? Well, firstly, congratulations to Ireland. It's a massive achievement. You know, getting Grand Slam is is a massive, massive achievement. And feel like I've been a bit spoiled on Grand Slams in, in, in my lifetime with, you know, Wales getting quite a few. England, not so many, has to be said. <laughs> um, not since the 90s or early 2000s anyway. Um, but for Ireland especially, I think this is sort of a coming together of a real uh, sort of approach to the game, the, the, the actual professional game in the country since it went professional. And we've got to remember when it went professional, everyone, this will be the end of Ireland. Like, you know, re, re, you know, I, they didn't, people couldn't understand how it was going to work. And maybe with a bit of geography uh, and, and, and history, it's kind of helped, um, you know, and having four teams. But let's not forget, like, there was a lot of talk right at the beginning about Connacht being a nothing side. Um, they were there just sort of getting beasted all of the time. Um, and look at them now. You know, they've got a number of players in the Ireland squad. Um, they regularly, if not always, now qualify for the Champions Cup. Um, and as we know at Sale, they're a really tough team to play against, especially away from home. They've really built a really tremendous structure and they've got a really strong coaching setup. Two of which, by the way, got sacked by England after the 2015 World Cup. Um, but I, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a methodology of playing, a methodology of coaching across all of their professional sides has culminated in their in their team, their international team being super, super strong. So this is I think has been a long, a long time coming. Um, of course they have a clear advantage for things like Six Nations and the Multi Internationals in that they're bringing together from four sides um who all have a you know a, a, mostly a similar way of playing. Um, you know, and I think that gives them a bit of a jump start. By the World Cup you know, a lot of people would have been camped for some time. They'll be fitter, etc. But you've got to say now, you know, if, if Ireland don't win the World Cup this time, you will be wondering if they ever will. Um, you know, because I've, I've never known an Ireland... 
an Ireland squad to be so strong. I think they've had really strong first 15s um, before, um, especially in 2011, let's say. You know, really strong side when Driscoll was at his peak. But, you know, I think what happens if Sexton gets injured, that's the only big thing on Ireland. Generally, they're on the Six Nations. I think it's been a fantastic tournament. Considering the weather hasn't been beaming sunshine, usually you finish the tournament in Rome at sort of like 30 degree heat. Not at all this time. Crap weather the whole time round, but still some excellent rugby on show. Nearly every single game was engaging, at least to 60 minutes. Um, Italy lost all their games, but were competitive right the way through. I think this was, post-COVID, a return to form for the Six Nations. Right, I mean... There's a lot to, to go into here and, and maybe we just touch upon the games from Saturday first before we have a little look at the the overall standings because I think there's some interesting things to call out there as well. So, I mean, Alex, let's, let, let's go chronologically. You know, we start with, with a bit of a dead rubber. Scotland, Italy, Scotland win 26-14, a, a scoreline that uh, is padded out a little bit by the fact that uh, Scotland scored with, with time dead and actually off the back of a turnover in their 22, uh, given that I, Italy were, uh, were actually pushing for, for a famous, uh, famous winner at Murrayfield. Um, look, I've made my thoughts about Italy quite clear. You know, I, I, I don't think there's, I don't like the idea of valiant, you know, gallant losers or valiant losers. And I think, you know, at some point you have to put up and shut up again. You know, you look at playing out from the 22 knock-ons, you know, the scoring points and, and not getting the ball to halfway, it's a real concern, even if you can admire the ambition. Um, so where do you sort of stand on, on? let's start with Italy in this one. Like, you know, again, they've fallen short, they've lost by 12 points and two tries. Scotland have just about inched closer, sorry, inched over the line, but to be honest, it's a performance that's closer to what we've seen in the past rather than some of those impressive performances we've seen earlier in the tournament. I mean, what was your what was your overall thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think frustrating for Italy. And as you say, it gets tiresome um, kind of constantly saying the signs are there, but the results just aren't quite. And in, and in fairness, listen, you know, some of the results have been there, but a lot of Italy's wins come as, you know, major sort of surprises, backs to the wall, you know, pull it out of the bag at the last minute. But realistically, this is a game they should have won. And and that's the frustrating thing, I think. You know, they they really actually struggled to get over the game line and, and be clinical in the 22. You know, they were by far the better side up until they got about 10, 15 metres out from Scotland's line and they just couldn't find a way to unlock that defence in the final sort of 10, 15 metres without making a mistake and without trying to force it. And listen, they're still a young side. Um, they're still sort of, you know, trying out new combinations. This was a new halfback combination, I think, for this Six Nations. Um, don't think we've seen that combo because obviously Stephen Barney's been starting and Garbisi is coming back from injury. Um, so, you know, there's still reasons why it's not quite flowing, but it is still very sort of, it's very Italy to get five metres out and then chuck the ball at someone's head and create an accidental offside when you should be winning the game. Um, so that was quite frustrating. I thought Scotland were pretty poor. Um, generally at home, you would expect them to have put in a better performance than that. 
Um, Kinghorn obviously got, I think, three tries in the end, was it? Which was a disaster for those of us who didn't have him in our Six Nations fantasy team. Um, but it was, yeah, it was almost like he just sort of muscled his way over the line from five metres. And if he, it's ironic because if he'd been on the other side and playing for Italy, then that was exactly what they needed. Someone to just pick up the ball, run at space and get over the line. Um, so, yeah, as you say, the scoreline belies the closeness at the end. But I actually think that Italy can't have too many complaints about that scoreline until they can start converting chances into into points and into tries. And I think, I mean, we talked about it the other week, I think, but Garbisi at 10 just plays so deep and slows them down and stops that momentum. And yes, they can play out from the 22, but actually they need, they look better with Tommy Allen at 10. And then maybe we'll see Garbisi at 12. But obviously you've got, there's so much talent in that Italy team. Men and Cello played in the centre for the first time on tournament, which is where he should actually play. Um, you know, you've got Capozzo to come back in. The forwards now look, you know, you've got the Canoli brothers, you've got Michele Lamoureux, you've got a really good front row, the likes of Fischetti. And um, I think, you know, the bones, of a, the bones of a team are well and truly there. The, there is a team there. And you just hope that at some point they tick into that clinical edge and that kind of, and start getting the results that they deserve because they deserve to win this game. Win this game other than the fact that when they get 10 metres out, they can't score. And in, in some ways, that means they don't deserve to win this game. I think that that's a really good point about the bones of this team being there, because I think actually the drop-off you see player to player is quite apparent in a way that you don't see with Ireland, a really good example, or even Scotland. Like, I don't know if you boys, obviously I wasn't on the pod last week, I, don't know if, I can't remember if you boys spoke about it, but, you know, Menoncello looks, looks a, you know, a, a real talent. You know, uh, Capuazzo looks a real talent. Garbisi, you know, play and fly half. It, take, it takes a couple of years to really grow into that role. Canoni Brothers, etc. Then you look at players like Pierre Bruno, who I just thought had a terrible tournament. Every time he touched the ball, it was the wrong decision. Uh, it, or defensively, he was making the wrong reads. You know, the Wales game, he was the worst player on the pitch. Every time, everything he touched turned to shit, basically. Uh, including including uh, taking a man out in the air when Italy had the penalty advantage, uh, causing it causing it to be down as foul play, overturning a penalty, and, and then that being the end of the half. And you know, you look at players, you know, like him, Ignacio Brex, you know, is a bit of a holdover from previous eras. You know, Stephen Varney has, has shown promise, but I mean, I think there's genuine questions about him being to be honest, a premiership-level player, let alone a test player. And you just kind of look down the squad and actually compare it to, like, a Scotland where, you know, Scotland have finished this tournament in, what, third? You know, three wins out of five. Pretty good tournament overall. And actually, you go down the list, you know, even today, uh, sorry, even Saturday with a few players out, you know, Hugh Jones, Tupelotu, Van der Merwe, Kinghorn, Stein in your back line. Those are all test players. You know, Jack Dempsey, I thought, had a you know a really nice game. Jamie Ritchie, Sam Skinner. When you rotate your team and you're moving these players around, there's just a, a, a nice level of quality there, which you don't have with Italy. You're getting better. They're building a team, but there's still like five, six players where you look at them and think, would you get into most premiership squads starting 15? I, I don't know. Um, and I think, you know, you're missing Capowatt. So missing, you know, some of these players... Is it's quite apparent just how far Italy have to go, and I think you know you see it when they play Wales, you see it when they play Scotland, you see it when they play 
uh, you know, even England, like there's just a base level of quality that's apparent throughout all those squads, which Italy don't have at the moment. I think that's quite frustrating. Um, James, from from your perspective, anything you want to add on Scotland, Italy before we talk about uh, France and Wales? Talk about just that I think Italy were very, very close to getting over the line here. I know you said Gallant losers, but I mean, that was the closest that they came. Uh, you know, two, three minutes left. Um, you know, they, they, they just, they panicked in front of the line. Um, I think nearly any other side, maybe even Wales would have scored um, from, from that position, honestly. The, the Scots were frantic defence. And I think Italy, all they had to do was just, just not make a mistake. Unfortunately, they eventually did through a, through a knock-on. Um, I actually think they would, rather than the tap penalty, I think they would might have been better off going to the corner and trying to get a push-over try. Um, yes, they would have needed to have converted it to to, to, to win, but I just think, you know, I, 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 that's probably what I've done, but it's maybe all with hindsight. I think Scotland have um, made a step forward in this tournament um, for the for the reason that, you know, they, they lost to two sides that are on a different level. Um, but certainly in the French game, I think they were in that game and actually, you know, a bit of luck and intercept trials and they could have won it. So I think that the Scotland have managed to keep a momentum through the Six Nations, scraping a win at the end with Italy. But overall, you have to say they've made quite a big step forward. You know, in previous tournaments, they've won that first game against England and then they've just fallen off immediately. They have kind of maybe a, maybe a slow decline, but they've managed to keep their, 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 their performance levels pretty high. Obviously, they will continue to have criticism, I think, around their project player approach. Um which is very significant, um, but it is, you know, that you could say is just a very intelligent player identification in positions that they need. Maybe there's holes in from a pathway perspective and it's working out at the top level. I mean, just on that point, obviously over here in Australia, there's talk about Moese Tui Pilotu, who is 22 years old and has a handful of caps. Like literally we're talking three or four caps here for the Waratahs in Sydney as being someone who is being tapped up by the Scottish like player project program. So obviously Moesi is the brother of uh, of um I can't remember his it's first Sione. name now. There it's you go. Sioni Tupolotu yeah. who started at twelve and, and it's like again uh they qualify through Scotland through the grandparents, but Scotland are being very aggressive with their approach. It's smart but it's also aggressive to bring these players in and get them involved and it's working. You know and until World Rugby changed, you know, there some of their loopholes and, and changed some of these things for for the for the for the long run. You know, it's going to keep happening. But credit to Scotland, like they can only work within the rules that they've been given, and they're, they're using them properly. But it does leave a bit of a sour taste in their mouth whether they're, they're tapping up twenty-one-year-olds, twenty-two-year-olds from Australia to come and play for them. But then that's what France are doing as well. So <laughs> France are doing it even earlier. They're picking up fourteen-year-olds from. Fiji and, Fiji, yeah. and whatnot, uh, and so that they're doing it even earlier. That's true, but they have also simultaneously made some very, very strict rules around French qualified players and bringing salary caps down as well. And they've still managed to maintain, you know, well, more than maintain, they've they've returned to the top table. Um, Ireland, of course, have a, a a slightly less aggressive project player basis, but. You only have to have a look at some of the players, Bielham, Lowe, Hansen, you know, uh, Van der Fleer. You know, there's plenty in the Irish side as well, but, you know, probably more buy-in to come to the system 
not necessarily already designated as a future international. It took Van der Feer quite a long time to break through. Uh, Bielham's had to wait his turn. Um, you know, Low and Hansen, you'd say, probably more sort of rejects from the system in the South rather than sort of plucked out maybe on an upward curve. Even so, even so, if you're the likes of Jacob Stockdale or something, injuries aside, you're sort of looking at the James Lowe thing going, mm, okay, is that is that is that right, actually? Um, anyway. Well, we, we, we've just been talking about project players and we're talking about France. So, Alex, France win the mid-afternoon game, 41 points to 28. A bit of a... Bit of a foregone conclusion, this one. You know, Wales sort of kind of held at arm's length for, for the majority of the game. Um, your thoughts on this one? Because, you know, if you're French, um, you know, you've you've not been able to back up the Grand Slam last year. You've had a few injuries, you know, a few, few different changes, but you finished on a high. You've won four out of five games. You've only lost to the team that's done the Grand Slam. Is this a success for France in the long run, given that the World Cup is... A few months away. If I was France, I'd be worried about the World Cup from this tournament. I don't think they've performed that well, to be honest. Um, and I think you sort of saw it in this game again. You know, this is a really poor Wales team who, albeit, played very well. Um, but I'm talking in terms of the Wales teams of the past and in terms of the other teams in this Six Nations, you know. Um, and and France seemed to... to struggle against, you know, kind of... It, it was Wales' most impressive start to a game, pretty much all tournament. Um, and I just think throughout the tournament, not necessarily specifically this game, because France have still got an incredible amount of talent and and the tries they score are just mind-blowingly good. You know, Dupont and Tamak, Peno, just can create magic out of nowhere. And that's amazing to watch. And it was, it was brilliant to watch. And it was a really good game for that reason. It was also a really good game because Wales played very well and kind of got that first try and contributed a bit of bit of interest to it. So I think in, in terms of this game, you know, there's been entertainment. France have got the bonus point win. But conceding 28 points against Wales is not great at home. Um, you know, they've obviously lost against Ireland, nearly lost to Italy. Um, they've not actually had that many games where you think this France side could win the World Cup. Now, obviously, they had the game against England where you think this France side could win the World Cup, but I think that was England's nadir and that was definitely France's high point of the tournament for me. Um, so, yeah, it's been a it's been a weird tournament for France. I wouldn't go into this World Cup feeling uh, ecstatic with this Six Nations, but I think they've shown enough in the glimpses of what they can do that they're going to go a long way in that tournament. You just worry that you know, they were, they've almost done an island. They peaked a year ago and they're still incredible and they've still got incredible players. But as a team, they're not just not quite at the level they probably would want to be going into a, a home World Cup. That said, they're at home. So um, I think still plenty of positives for them. And if you've got DuPont and Tamak, then um, I mean, Jonathan Dante obviously missed a bit of the tournament, I think, with injury, didn't he? Um, Fiki is an absolute leader in that back line and their pack is you know they've, they've got a squad more than capable of winning the World Cup who have shown that they can perform at a level to win at the World Cup I just don't think they showed it that often in this tournament Wales I think will be quite happy with that performance I think it was probably their best one of the tournament um, but 
I think all the concerns remain. I think much like England, France, albeit at least Wales got some points on the board. Um, France just had them at arm's length the whole time, and you know they were never. You never thought Wales were going to get even near winning that game, and that's a bit of a sad reflection on where Welsh rugby is because you know there's been a lot of times where Wales, you know. Been close even a couple of years ago. You know, Wales uh, basically had to beat France to win the tournament, didn't they? Um, when Brice Dillon scored that try in the last minute. Um, so you know, it's it's a bit of a sad reflection of where Wales are. But you know, a, a few bits of hope. I think Rio Dyer is an absolute find for Wales. I think he's been superb. He was he was. I saw him um, when Wales played New Zealand in the autumn, and he scored try on debut. And ever since then, he's just. Um, He's been really impressive. So, you know, signs of life, but pretty poor tournament for Wales. Um, no need to panic for France, but I think probably need a Sean Edwards rocket up the arse over the summer. I just want to... The, the one thing everyone knows on this pod that I love watching the French play rugby, I love how they play, I love the strategy, I love the individual players. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I feel quite confident in France going into this world. Cup. I think they're going to finish in the se- in the semi-finals at least. I, I still have them as the favourites to win it all, even over Ireland and, and New Zealand or whoever else. I do just want to shout out though Thomas Ramos, right? Who finished with 84 points in this year's Six Nations competition. Do you boys know who came second and how many points they scored? I'd have to guess. Oh, I don't know. I was going to say I'd have to guess Sexton, but he's missed games. I don't think anyone else has even played five games, have they? I've not a clue. Is it going to be like... Someone random like Blair King or... Yeah, I was going to say Blair King. So it is Jolly Sexton. Okay. 35 points. So if my maths is correct... Thomas Ramos has scored 49 points more than anyone else in this year's competition, which just speaks to the fact he is such a metronomic kicker for this French team. He can get on the end of tries. He's got three tries in this year's tournament as well. He is such an incredible player, and we never talk about him. And I think that, to me, is why I'm so confident in France going into this competition. The depth in their squad and the ability of the players that they have is, is you know, at a level match probably only by New Zealand, uh, I think is fair to say. You take, you take James Lowe, you take Johnny Sexton, you take James Ryan out of this, this island team, they look significantly weaker. You take Thomas Ramos, who's just got 84 points in this year's Six Nations out of the team, you've got Melvin Jaminet to replace him, who was the best player in the competition two years ago. Like they have obviously such an insane amount of depth that I, you know, it's hard not to feel excited, even if you're a little got a little bit of trepidation. Trepidation, I think you can still feel very excited about this French team, and and I just wanted to shout out Thomas Ramos, who I just love watch play, I love watch playing rugby at the moment, as I do with most of the other French players. And just on France as well, it's an interesting point that when you look at their team now and how strong it is and how deep it is. It's all sort of virtually all homegrown French players. And you think about like 10 years ago when they were playing like Scott uh, Spedding at fullback and all the, those, these kind of players who were project players. I think 
you can see how bringing in those project players initially you can sort of pivot yourself to creating a really good homegrown league and base of players um and i think it's really good to see for french rugby that this is a really really french team um not that i'm criticizing the other nations who are doing it because there's perfectly good reasons to do it and as i say france have done it but it's just really interesting to see how far they've come along that journey and and how kind of that those players probably actually when france were getting all that criticism for picking like south africans probably set the groundwork not only internationally but massively so domestically as well for all these players to come through and, and perform for france still think that the, the, you know that there's still question marks behind antonio tighthead that they they still haven't quite worked out the emergence of flamont as a world-class player in this in this six nations has been massive for them because depth at second row has also been an issue and there are a couple of couple of injuries there from being less than effective. Uh, but back row, they could pick three three back rows and still be effective. Um, I think Untermat was probably about to be dropped when Jalabert went down injured in training. Um, he's the only question mark in terms of form, I would say. But they, they, they've got a very sensible way of approaching it. You know, they've kind of got the Toulouse halfbacks as first choice and the Bordeaux as the second choice when Dante is injured. You know, in comes the Bordeaux twelve. You know, it, like they're going with people who are used to playing together, so they can just slot straight in. And I think it's very, very clever. Um, and as you said, you know, Ramos wouldn't have started this tournament if Jamane had started, uh, if hadn't been injured at the beginning of the tournament, which is a frightening prospect as Ramos was absolutely exceptional. Ramos's weakness has always been in the mind. Um, under lots of pressure, he has struggled in the past, made mistakes under the high ball, even his kicking didn't go off. But now he's so central to the side, you can just see him absolutely flying. He's such an intelligent rugby player and it enables them to take just the two fly halves to the World Cup as well because, you know, they know that Ramos can play very effectively at 10. Um, and in terms of Wales, just very quickly, just to finish off on Wales, I thought they they turned up, basically. Um, and I think if they turned up in the same way as they did against France, against someone like Scotland, they might have had a result there, honestly. Um, some of their more experienced players actually found a different gear that I thought had gone permanently. People like George North had a good game. I hadn't seen him have a kind of good game for years. Um, so maybe there's some hope there. And they maybe have uncovered some players that whilst they're not quite ready for this World Cup, it's enough to have some hope post-World Cup. If they can start sorting out the politics in the game, they can work out how to have a sustainable regional um, set of sides then, you know, the likes of Joe Hawkins has come through nicely, Daffy Jenkins, um, you know, there's a few. There's Mason Grady. There's a few there where you go, you know what, they'll get there. They'll get there by 20, what's the next one, 2027. They'll have a, a core of players, they'll have enough caps. The question is, is there other players coming through the system to join them? And I don't see that right now. Just shout out as well. He didn't really play that much in this year's comp, but Jack Morgan is a player that I, I've got a bit of a soft spot for. Really like him. He's a brace of six, six slash eight. Like you said, I think if you're if you're a Welsh rugby fan, the emergence of Rio Dyer, the emergence of David Jenkins, the the emergence of um, Mason Grady, you know, getting these players bloodied in now is going to pay dividends down the line in three or four years. And at least at least you can see where some of those holes are going to be filled. But you are right. It's whether or not they can fill all those holes or whether or not they have to start 
doing like uh, Ireland and Scotland and finding South Africans who want to play international rugby. Um, with that all being said, let's go on to the final game. And obviously, it was a Grand Slam decider for, for Ireland as they... Um, it's an interesting one. I was going to say comfortably held off England. I don't know if that's necessarily true. They were the better side. However, there was plenty of controversy. So... Alex, I think you've got some thoughts on this one. Uh, Freddie Stewart gets sent off for, uh, you know, sort of bumping into Hugo Keenan. Where do you where do you stand on this, Alex? Because obviously the, the reaction to this was quite visceral in that the game was relatively close at that point. I think it was, was it 10-9 in England's favour? And obviously it just completely ruins the game. You know, Ireland go on to win relatively comfortably. Um, where do you where do you stand on this? Because it kind of felt like a bit of an anticlimax for what was shaping up to be a, a very very exciting game of uh, of rugby to finish off what's been a, a pretty good tournament. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think England played so well in that first half, best have seen them play for well all tournament. They were getting over the game line. I think Manny makes a massive difference in that. Um, you know, just. The accuracy was there, and, and and like I say, we were winning the game line, which we haven't done all for quite a long time, to be honest. Um, and I think you're right. I think it would have been close had that not happened. The problem with getting a fullback sent off in the age of the fifty twenty two law is that you have to drop another person out of the back line, and then it becomes really easy to attack. That's sort of the point of the law. I get it. Um, it makes the game more exciting, but it does also make it one sided. Um, and listen, that's it, it should be one-sided if you commit an act of foul play. This I, I really struggled with this because I just thought this was clearly not a red card and anyone who thought this was a red card just basically didn't watch rugby day-to-day, has never played the game. And I've seen people who say it's a red card and normally I can kind of understand alternative viewpoints and can see why people come to them and I just really struggle to understand how this is a red card because when you play it in full speed the ball is knocked on it changes the direction of the ball it changes the whole dynamic of the situation and what Freddie Stewart does is the position he's got himself into not an illegal position pre the contact Hugo Keenan then goes down to get the ball dropping his height and um, the thing is that Freddie Stewart can't do anything. I didn't think Freddie Stewart could have done anything that would have made that situation safer because he could have gone in to hit Keenan and that would have been more dangerous. He didn't have time to move. So what he tries to do is sort of take the contact, turn his body so that, you know, it's not a head on head, like front on collision, which is a natural, but B also, you know, I honestly, I don't, I don't see what Freddie Stewart could have done to make that situation safer. And the point of red cards and the point of this protocol is to change player behaviour to make the game safer. Freddie Stewart did not exhibit any behaviour that made the game unsafe. If anything, you can see in how he reacts, he has gone whatever the opposite of the hyper aggressive way that some people go into tackles is. He's gone passive. He's tried to take the contact and it's a really unfortunate collision. So I genuinely thought this would just be a rugby incident play on and I completely failed to understand how it's a red card. 
I know people have made arguments about well, look at where the contact is, or he turns, he turns so that there's you know an arm or elbow hits the head. I think that's complete bollocks. But I think this is one of those issues that I'm. I will never ever be able to understand why someone thinks that is a red card. They will probably never ever understand why I don't think it's a red card. So we'll have to agree to disagree. But I just think. If, you, if you're giving red cards out to make the game safer, what you've done there is someone who has tried their best to make the situation that is has occurred, which is no one's fault, as safe as possible, been sent off for it. And then, as you say, ruined the game. And as I said at the top, I, a person who gives up an hour a week to do a Sale Sharks fan podcast, so a pretty big rugby fan, then just turned around and went, well, there's no point watching that anymore. I didn't watch the second half of the game. I watched City Burnley on the other telly because it was more interesting. And I'm not the person you need to worry about whether I'm going to rugby. You need to worry about the people who are in a bar watching it and that just ruins the game for them. And I've spoken to other people who did the same, just went, well, there's no point watching anymore, is there? Because the red card and the game's over. And I think at the moment... We understand that that red card ruins the game and it's game over and England aren't going to win. People will come to understand and people will stop watching the game. So I would love I would love the explanation of why it was a red card. I didn't have the benefit of the commentary, so I didn't really get the full explanation. But yeah, I, I don't think... I, I need to stop thinking about it because I just... I will never come to terms with it. But I feel very harsh for Freddie Stewart. Um, I think he's been hard done to, but that's just my opinion. And I'm sure someone will tweet me and tell me I'm wrong. Well, I, I must admit, and obviously I'm biased because I see it a lot more, but I'm a big advocate for the 20-minute red card that we have in the Southern Hemisphere competitions. And I certainly see the arguments against it because the whole point of a red card is to de-incentivise reckless actions, reckless behaviour. But this is a perfect example of where a 20-minute red card would have validity or an orange card or whatever you want to call it. Because, look, if you are going by the letter of the law, yes, there's head contact, there is a degree of force, it's in theory a red card. But it's not a red card. Like in practice, it it just shouldn't be. And I think it is very frustrating, particularly as – as rugby grapples with how does it grow in popularity? How do we continue to you know make the game a bit fast, exciting, energetic without compromising player safety? Like it's a really important thing to grapple with, but it is very frustrating, and it is why twenty-minute red cards is still is still a punitive measure and a considerable punitive measure without being um, overly harsh and, and overly punitive for what is basically a mistake. Um, but that, that's obviously overshadowed what was you know, a triumph for Ireland. And James, I know you've already spoken a little bit about Ireland and, and kind of where they've, they've come from and what they've built. But let's follow up on that. Like from your perspective, how impressive was this Ireland Grand Slam win? You know, how does it compare to France last year? You know, what, what, what does it sort of you know, speak to in terms of the, the power dynamics of the Northern Hemisphere game? Is this a one-off or is this you know, a sign of... You know, a potential dynasty emerging for for Irish rugby. I think it's closer to the latter. I mean, clearly there's big questions about how they're going to replace Johnny Sexton. Don't think they have the generational player coming through to replace him. They have solid players, and then it's the question of whether other players around them can can step up. 
Um, you know, you saw a glimpse of the future again. Obviously, K- Kaylin Doris has, has made that you know step up to world class. Um, and you got the likes of uh, Ryan Baird had a go this this week. You know, they've had a few injuries going into this game against England. And let's be honest, I don't think Ireland really looked like losing. They they did they did they were shaken in the first half. Don't get me wrong, because England got right up them, and their defence was desperate. But an Ireland made mistakes under pressure. You had the likes of Hugo Keenan slicing the ball into touch, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Um, so they were shaken. I think if you're playing Ireland at the World Cup, you're Scotland, for example, you can see a template to try and do something about this that doesn't just try and injure Johnny Sexton in the first minute and then hope for the best. Um, so, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think that there are enough players coming through the system. They're under twenties and now also top of the pile pretty much on a regular basis, which is actually an even bigger turnaround than 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 the senior side. You know, because I, I I think that that shows that the pathways are working uh, in the most part. Leinster are right up there as the best club in the world, honestly, for their pathways. And it is, it's the amount of players that don't make it in Leinster and then end up going elsewhere, you know, end up at Exeter or Newcastle or wherever. It's quite, it's quite a phenomenal engine for the amount of players that are actually playing the game, like amateur. It is, it's, they're punching well and well above their weight. So I don't know whether they're going to be able to stay at the very top as number one in the world as a dynasty for a very long time. But can we see them being competitive in the top four or five teams in the world now for the next decade? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, and fair play to Ireland. Your grand slams don't come around easy. You know, you've, you've, got to, you've got to win some tough games and you, you're never going to perform brilliantly in five games in a row. Um, and, and they managed to keep their performance levels pretty high. Their worst game of the tournament, I think, was against England. Um, I do think England deserve a lot of credit for the heart that they put into it. It was the most committed I'd seen them, but they still look like a blunt instrument in attack, whether it's Smith at 10 or Farrell at 10. They don't seem to be able to get Henry Slade in the game in, in, in a much in a very effective way. I'd be interested. Freddie Stewart is the best under the high ball in the world. So would you ever move from 15? But I, I'd like to see him have a go at 12 post-World Cup because I think that that's where there's a hole. Go on, Liz. I've, I've got to say, like... I'm sorry to beat a bit of a dead horse with the Southern Hemisphere stuff, but there is a bit of Geordie Barrett in Freddie Stewart. And you look at the the ability based on the physical skills to play across the bat line. We've obviously seen him play wing once or twice already as well. But you're right, like having bringing Stewart into 12 actually probably answers some of England's problems because what we're beginning to see from him is he's, he could be a dominant ball carrier. He's six foot five and about 18 stone. He's a big boy. And actually, at 15, as good as he is, te- from a technical perspective, there's only so much he can impact the game. And, you know, I'd love to, I've always been a fan of, again, you sort of see it with Jordy Barrett, you know, when you bring your 15 as a crash ball runner into the midfield, I think that's something that England just haven't been doing. And I think it's actually a it's a it's a nice out of the box solution for what is probably England's biggest problem at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a solution. I don't think it's a solution for the World Cup because I think Lawrence has gone reasonably well at twelve, and I think that Tuolangi showed enough in the first 10, 15 minutes where he could be effective at least as a coming off the bench option, trying to change the game. And I think Stuart, we don't have another fifteen. You know, Watson. 
actually showed up quite well. And I think we'll give Borthwick confidence he can go into the World Cup as the second 15, but he won't go to the World Cup afterwards. You know, if England wants to try and broaden their attacking game for 2027, then you're going to need to try and find, I think, a fullback. Sounds ridiculous because Freddie Stewart's England's best player over the last 12 months. But you're going to have to try and find somebody who can break the line who's good enough under the high ball international level. You know, whether it's our very own Joe Carpenter or Lou James, don't know. But um, I think that's it's, it's something worth having in the back of the mind. Someone like Warren Gatland would be thinking about it um, because, you know, you don't have the same blessings of talent. And that's what he did with Jamie Roberts. That said, Jamie Roberts was crap under the high ball. So, I mean, it was a relatively easy decision to make. Uh, you know, Freddie Stewart is just a bank. Every time someone kicks the ball, he just eats it up. He always breaks that first tackle like through them rather than like you know dodging around them or whatever. So I think there's a few things there for, for England that they can that they can think about. But I feel sorry for Borthwick and that he's picked up the conundrum that you can see Eddie Jones has been working with. And Eddie Jones got criticized for his selection and picking these random players and all the rest of it. But you can see he was trying to find a solution to a problem that he knew he had. And, you know, people are now back on the Farrell's crap bandwagon. Fair enough, he's not in great form. Um, and, you know, but, I mean, let's not forget that, like, 16 out of the last 17 Eddie Jones games had Marcus Smith starting at 10. So it's not like Marcus Smith is the solution to the problem we've had over the last two, three years. Marcus Smith has been the solution. We've gone back to try and find what was there before with Farrell. Maybe Ford comes back into the reckoning. But... Really what needs to happen, I think, is somebody needs from the new generation post-World Cup, like a Finn Smith or someone like that, different type of player to see what fits the team best. Um, but I don't think he's got enough time to solve that before the World Cup, in which case, you know, he's going to get with Farrell, isn't he? And I, I think anybody who was put in the same situation, most people would make the same decision, honestly, um, and have Smith coming off the bench. I was disappointed that Smith didn't come off the bench because that's why... You have him on there to try and change the momentum shift. Yeah. You, the, the, you, so if, if Farrell is immovable, that is a problem for me. You've got to be able to take Farrell off, Smith on, and someone else become captain. That for me is the is is the critical thing. You can't always move Farrell into the centre. Sometimes it's worthwhile if if the weather is good and you can shift it wide. Maybe you've got a different 13 on the pitch to Slade. You know, you, you can see how that could work. But I, I you know, you've got to bring Smith on after. 65 minutes, you know, ter terrify people with his, with his change of direction and his pace. You know, that's what he's there for. So, yeah, I, th I think England are struggling in the sense that the defence isn't rock solid. In fact, it's a long, long way from rock solid. It's still probably the weakest after Wales in the tournament um, from a defensive lineup. So, Simfield's got a lot of work to do there. If they can get that fixed for the World Cup and Farrell can kick his goals again, you just never know because England on the, are on the right side of the draw. And if they get some momentum and, you know, some of their younger players really start firing, then fair play. It's going to be a race against time for Chesham, sounds like, to be fit for the World Cup. And, you know, Johnny Hill's in terrible form, as we know. So, that you know, generally terrible form. So, and Etoje is not himself. So there's some big worries in the second row, which for 2019, you say, probably was our strongest position. Felt like we have millions of them <laughs> at times. I don't know where they've all gone. Um, but yeah, okay. I mean, look, it's not a disaster for England, but it's close to. Borthwick will have opportunity post-World Cup to rebuild the side. 
Yeah, but it is a bit of a worry when your World Cup hopes hang on Oli Chesson, who is a perfectly fine player, but is you know nowhere near being Eben Etzebeth or Brody Retallick or even James Ryan at this point. Um, Alex, any any quick thoughts on on England before we um, do a quick player of the tournament? No, I don't think any more on England. I think James has summed it up very well. I'd just add that Ireland are a really good team and they're clearly in the best position they've been in going going into a World Cup for a long, long time. Um, but they've been in good positions before World Cups before and this is the test of Farrell. I, w- I would also point out, you, talk, you mentioned it briefly before, but if you look at Irish rugby now, you've got Lancaster at Leinster, Roundtree at Munster, Farrell and Cat at Ireland. They were the four members of the coaching team for England in 2015. And yeah, Eddie Jones might have been the solution for a short time. But I think, again, it continues. It points again to how partly the RFU, but partly also the English rugby fan base just will never be as successful as they should be because they lack patience. And Borthwick is having the same issue that... People just expect England to win every game and have absolutely no comprehension of the fact that international rugby isn't about just putting a few players on a pitch and hoping it all works out. It's a, it's about coaching a team and playing a style and, and building a resilience that at international level is just so hard to do. So um, I'm very, very pleased for all of those four coaches that they have been justified after, I think, being absolutely shafted by the RFU in the wake of 2015. Um, so that's very good. But yes, let's, uh, let's do play with the tournament. Yeah, James. So go on, I'll give you first first bite of the apple here. Uh, I'm going to say Caelan Doris. Uh, he's outside Jack Conan, who we know is a very solid player. And uh, for me, he's kind of like... The, the Kieran Reid of, of this generation. Um, and he, he, for me, absolutely fantastic. I've got Charles Olivon as mine. I don't think I saw a better individual performance in the entire, the entire tournament than what Olivon did against England, where he was, the, he was of, of a few, just absolutely world, world, world class. Uh, everything he touched turned to gold. And I just think he's such an important part of, of what makes that French team tick. I just thought he was fantastic throughout the entire tournament. And whilst someone like DuPont will get all the headlines, it's players like Olivon that elevate your team from being a good team to being a great one. Alex? Uh, I will... I, I agree with your two. Um, so I'm just throwing a couple of names into the hat for having an opinion. But I'll go for either Thomas Ramos, obviously, for scoring the most points in the world. <laughs> um, but also, I think Thibaut Flamont uh, for France mm. had an absolute stormer of a tournament um, and is, as we, we kind of said in the French preview, a massive find, but also just just such a useful player. So I think you're right. I think those French forwards were, were up there. Either, but it was a really good team performance from, from Ireland. I think France have probably got the better individual performances mm. over the tournament. But Ireland, it's almost hard to pick someone out because they all played so well. So um, Ireland is team of the tournament, obviously, not only for winning it, but also for their performances. Well, absolutely. So that's that's our Six Nations wrap. No sale to talk about this week. Um, so we hope you enjoyed a slight pivot away from usual programming. Um, but thank you very much to Alex and James for joining me. Thank you to the Six Nations for delivering the goods once again. And thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in, even though there's 
the only sale talk was about Johnny Hill being in terrible form. So thanks very much for listening, guys. We'll speak to you soon. Hi, it's Dean Steiger from Sale Shark Supporters Club here. Just want to let you know about a couple of events we've got coming up in the very near future. April the 18th, we've got our annual end of season dinner to be held at Hayward Road. £37 for members, £42 for non-members. Great opportunity to have a conversation with either a player or a coach who will be sat at your table. Lots of time for autographs and questions. Um, There'll be a raffle, uh, an auction, and it's always a, a great fun evening. On April the 22nd, we're running a bus to the Gloucester game, 5.30 kickoff in Gloucester. Uh, the cost of the bus is £25 return for members and £32 return for non-members. Um, so hopefully see you at one or both of those events. Um, for more information on both of them, just email us at events at salesreporters.co.uk and we'll get back to you with some more information. So hopefully see you very, very shortly and good luck to the team as we get those extra points we need to get the home semi-final.